0: a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that our confidence is not in the things of this world. It's not in politics. It's not in people. It's not in uh, human leaders. It's always in you. Ultimately, you are the God who watches over us, protects us, secures us. You are the God guiding and directing uh, human history. But we recognize that even within human history, you utilize evil and wicked nations and horrible circumstances in order to bring discipline and judgment upon those who have failed the test of prosperity, those who have uh, rejected you, those who have given themselves over to perversion and corruption. And you have used uh, evil nations from uh, the Old Testament times with the Philistines, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians to bring judgment uh, against Israel for their failure to obey you. And all throughout history, we have seen how you have raised up evil and wicked powers and nations in order to bring judgment against uh, those who have disobeyed you. Father, we know that if we live in such a time that you still protect us, just as you did with the uh, generation uh, that faced the Assyrians, just as you did with the generation of Jeremiah that faced the Babylonians, you, you protected them, you provided for them, you gave them wisdom, you gave them the spiritual skills necessary to survive, and those who focused on you, even though their circumstances might have been uh, pretty miserable, nevertheless they had hope in you because they knew you were in control. And the same thing's true for our lives. When bad things happen, when we face crises and difficulties and suffering and adversity and hardship... We know that you are in control and we are to learn to trust you for it's in the midst of those fiery trials that we experience your grace, your goodness, your strength, your power. And that's our hope. That's our confidence that gives us the ability to live through whatever may happen today because we're living in light of eternity. Now, Fathers, we study tonight in First Peter. We pray that you'd help us to understand these things. as This is the very focus of this epistle. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to get into some interesting stuff tonight. may challenge our brain cells just a little bit as we think our way through these verses. I've been setting this up over the past several weeks as we've painstakingly worked our way through the doctrine of inheritance and through the exegesis of the first part of this sentence. But where we get to tonight is to understand... The last part of this, this sentence, beginning in verse 4, and how it works out into verse 5, and I'll give you a little bit of a heads up. What we're going to discover is that the way most of us have been taught this verse probably isn't right. The way most of us have looked at this verse, especially uh, verse 5, probably isn't quite right. There's a number of verses in the Bible that are that way where there's sort of a historic popular interpretation or understanding and usage of these verses that really doesn't quite fit the context. If you were here at the Chafer conference and I presented on Romans 10:9 and 10, which I've taught here many times before, That's one of those passages. In a conversation recently with uh, uh, another pastor who's been working his way through Romans as he's struggled with coming to understand how to interpret many of these passages in Romans uh, 9 and 10 and 11. Uh, He gives me a call about once every couple of weeks and we kind of think through what's going on. And it's not always easy because what appears to us in a lot of places to be what the text is talking about may not be that because we we have to contextualize what is being said. And for example, in the Romans 10, 9, and 10 issue, you almost, as you work through that, when you come to Romans 11 and you realize that certain terms that are used in Romans 11, and Romans 9, 10, 11 is an integrated section. Uh, of Romans, you have words like salvation. It do, doesn't refer to phase one salvation at all. It doesn't refer to justification. It refers to an end time deliverance. When you look at words like righteousness, it has a doesn't have the connotation as it does in the first part of Romans, where it's focusing on justification. It's talking about a uh, phase two righteousness talking about israel it's not talking about individual jews and individual justification it's talking about the corporate nation you start working your way back through that section and then all of a sudden you have that aha moment where you realize that 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 all the way through romans 9 10 and 11 it's talking about god's plan for corporate israel and their future deliverance in time and and even though there are sections like at the end of romans chapter 9 where if you take those verses out of context it looks like they could be talking about justification and imputed righteousness. But once you plug it back into that, or that context, it can't mean that because nothing surrounding it has that, that connotation. So I came up with this little illustration to help us think through this today. This is a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. You look at that, all you have is a blue piece. You don't know anything about that because it doesn't have a context. When you look at this blue piece, you don't know if it uh, might uh, be part of a picture that is somewhat under, in a blue tint because of the lighting. And it could have a place in a picture like this. And so it, you're not really sure where it belongs when it's in isolation you ask the question, well, what does that mean? What is its significance? Is it the sky? Is it the sea? Is it the, you know, is it a blue uh, 1956 Chevy? Just just what is that depicting? So we have to understand that, that it is only the context that's going to give that individual piece meaning. It could, perhaps it could reflect the sky or the water or, the shading in the evening as the sun sets on the mountains, or it could uh, be part of the pattern on a hot air balloon, or it could be part of the sky. It could be part of the ocean, and it could reflect the colors of fish, or it could reflect the colors of plants, or it could reflect the color the color of the water. That, that blue could fit just about anything. But the only way that individual piece has meaning is with reference to the context around it. And that's the real issue in interpretation. And that's why we stress context, context, context. If you take the text out of the context, you're left with a con job. And everybody's guilty of that at some point or another. But historically, we've done that with a lot of different verses. And one of those that I think is a very obvious one is Romans 6.23, a verse that is part of what has uh, traditionally been called the Roman road. It starts with Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then it goes to Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then it goes to Romans 10.9 and 10 which, of course, doesn't have anything to do with justification either. So we have the issue of context. And this if you take this verse out of the context of Romans 6, then it sounds like it could be talking about get, becoming justified. The wages of sin is death. Well, that could be spiritual death, Right? How many people have used it that way? I think probably all of us have heard it used that way and have maybe used it that way. But the gift of God, well, Ephesians 2.8.9 says that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. An eternal life, that this is life eternal. When we die, we go on to live in heaven. Well, it's obvious this must be talking about justification and moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. But if you put that in the context of Romans 6 and understand what Paul is talking about in Romans 6.23, then this verse has absolutely nothing to do with how to get into heaven. And it has everything to do with why the believer should not walk according to the power of his sin nature. We look at just uh, seven verses earlier in Romans 6.16 Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death? Now, we know from our study in Romans that in Romans 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul is talking about justification by faith alone, and that justification is by faith alone, and that's how a person moves from being unjustified to justified is by at fa- the moment of faith. He receives the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and he is moved from enmity to God to peace with God, Romans chapter 5. But then he builds from that, and in Romans 6, he starts talking about the spiritual life, how you live after you're justified. He never again goes back to talking about justification again, Or phase one, he's talking about the spiritual life and the problem of sin in the life of the believer. And that if the believer sins, then what he will reap from that sin is death. Not spiritual death, certainly not physical death, but he will reap a death-like existence of what we call carnal death because he is walking according to the sin nature. And this is further used this way throughout uh Romans six and on into Romans chapter eight. Now the point I'm making here is that you can have a verse that if you just take that verse out of context, like that blue piece of, of jigsaw puzzle, it could mean just about anything. You may look at it and say, Well that that looks like it's talking about how to get saved, how to get justified. But without a context, you can't say that for sure. It could mean a couple of other different things. The only way you can know what that's talking about is to look at the surrounding context. Now, I'm often asked by, by people if it's okay to use Romans 6:23, uh, as a salvation verse, verse because it fits so well. Can't I use that when I'm tr- talking to an unbeliever? And the answer is no, because in doing it, you're, you're contributing to a couple of problems. Problem number one is you're contributing to the ongoing confusion and misuse of the passage. And so that person later on, if they get saved, they're always going to think that that's a salvation verse. I've often wanted to write a book on the number of verses, uh, different verses in Romans that people read, and somehow God the Holy Spirit uh, used that to convict them, and they trusted in Christ. And the verses have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with justification or, or saving faith in Christ. Just because somebody is saved because they misunderstand or misuse a passage doesn't justify the misuse, and the misunderstanding of the passage. Of course, the the classic is what? Romans 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone uh, lets me in, I will come in and sup with him. This is a fellowship verse. It has absolutely nothing to do with salvation, but you're going to find that in a vast number of, of, of salvation tracts. And people say, the way you're saved is by inviting Jesus into your heart or inviting Jesus into your life, and they base it on that, and it has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with that. So you contribute to a conf- ongoing problem of confusion. Um, another problem is that it's we're supposed to, if you're educated in the Bible, use the Bible to mean what God wants it to mean and not what we want it to mean. Now, the problem we have in postmodernism is people think they can just make anything mean whatever they want it to mean. So yes, you can make this mean justification, but then you're just operating like a postmodern relativist. You're saying, I can make the text mean what I want it to mean, not what the Holy Spirit intended and not what Paul intended. And that's just thinking like an unbeliever. So no, if you know better, you can't do it. You're just contributing to the problem of the misuse and confusion of, of, of a lot of Scripture. Now, the reason that I spent all of this time talking about that is we have a passage like that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It's a passage that on the surface looks like it's talking about eternal security, and eternal security is definitely in verse 4, but it's not in verse 5. And verse 5 has often been used uh, by people just to talk about eternal security, but it's not really there. So let's uh, sort of take this by the numbers and work our way, work our way through this. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. 3 through 5 is a sentence. Although, as you know, there's no punctuation in the original Greek, but the punctuation or the sentence structures are revealed by how the the grammar has has set up the sentence. So this is one sentence, one basic idea, and then everything develops from that. But the role of this particular sentence is to set up the next sentence. The next sentence begins in verse 6 and goes down through uh, about verse 9. I think something like that. And... Let's see where we're going for just a minute, shall we? Because if this is a setup to what's coming, maybe we can understand it better if we understand what's coming, okay? We know it's coming down the road. So look at verse 6. Verse 6, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice how many times in there he talks about salvation, talks about faith. but what's what's being talked about in verses 5 through 9? What's being talked about is how you and I can face trials, difficulties, heartaches, suffering today because we understand how it fits within God's plan and how it's going to work itself out towards an ultimate goal. So he's talking about looking at, for the believer, looking at facing trials, challenges, difficulties, adversity, here and now in light of eternity. Same thing we've taught, we've covered many times, living today in light of eternity. Beginning now in our Christian life with the end in mind, principle everybody should use whenever they go to a restaurant. Get the dessert tray, look at the dessert menu, begin with the end in mind. You don't want to fill yourself up on that, that entree when you've got something yummy coming for dessert. You've got to begin with the end in mind, right? So that's that's what... Peter's talking about here. So it tells us that the context here while it is definitely oriented to the end game while it's definitely oriented towards the future glory it's definitely oriented towards our future inheritance it's definitely focused on the fact that that Christ will be revealed in the future the focus isn't on the end game the focus is on how the end game impacts how we think here and now in our Christian life. That's the key phrase. He's talking about phase two. He's talking about our ongoing spiritual life, not phase one justification, but phase two sanctification. We'll get into that a little bit more in just a minute. So he starts off praising God. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Begotten us again is what? Phase one, right? When we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we are born again. we become regenerate, we have new life in Christ. We move from spiritual death to spiritual life. But that is oriented towards an end game. It's the beginning of something. It's not an end in itself. So we're born again to a living hope. And the foundation for this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because, as I've pointed out many times, the resurrection of Christ is always oriented to the new life we have in Christ. We're identified in Romans 6 3 with his death, burial, and resurrection, so that we now live in newness of life based on the resurrection. Goes on to say in verse 4 to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Now, I've spent the last two or three lessons focusing on what inheritance is, understanding the biblical background and framework for this so that we can identify what kind of inheritance this is going to be. It doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's where we're going to see eternal security. For you, And then he says something, and pay attention to this, because the way you read it in the English, even in the Greek, it's easy to assume that verse 5 is talking about the inheritance. But verse 5 is saying something else about you, y'all, about all of us. It's saying something else about believers in Jesus Christ and what they have in him. And that is that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Now, is this phase one, phase two, or phase three? Don't answer that yet. It looks like it's phase three. And if you just took this verse out of context, you will think that that's talking about future deliverance. But the context in this whole section doesn't use salvation that way. It's talking about present deliverance from fiery trials. That's what the theme of the whole epistle is about, is present deliverance from fiery trials. So at first glance, it looks like this is talking about phase three deliverance, the ultimate salvation. It isn't. It's talking about uh, present time salvation, as we'll see in just a minute, that we're kept through faith. Now, is that faith, phase one, faith in Christ alone for justification? Is that talking about the ongoing faith? In phase two, is it talking about faith in phase three? No, no, it can't be talking about faith in phase three because faith doesn't operate in phase three. Faith is on the basis of things not seen. But when when we die and we go into phase three in glorification, we're face to face with the Lord, so there's no more faith after the end of phase two. So it's either phase one or phase two, which is it? And we'll see that faith is mentioned again in verse seven. Believing is mentioned again uh, in verse 8, and in verse 9, faith is mentioned again. All of those are talking about phase 2 faith. They're not talking about phase 1. So that means if we're not talking about phase 1 faith, we're not talking about phase 1 salvation. And we're not certainly not talking about phase 3. So the, what I'm saying is we'll go through this again. I'm giving you the preview of coming attractions tonight. So we're... We're looking at verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The last time, is that going to be phase 2 or phase 3? Looks like phase, two, phase 3, doesn't it? Well, wait a minute, maybe not. Okay, obviously, there is a future focus here. And that's living hope in verse 3. Verse 4, reserved in heaven for you, may be revealed in the last time. That's what I was thinking before I got into a little more study today. Uh, I don't think that's phase 3 at all. That's phase 2. But then when we get into uh, starting in verse uh, verse 7, we see glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We will have joy inexpressible, full of joy. At the end of verse 8, I think that's... Phase three, and we see glory mentioned uh, mentioned again. The glories that would follow in verse uh, verse eleven. I think that's talking about glorification in phase three. But let's see what goes on here. Take it by the numbers. What kind of inheritance is this? Now we talked about inheritance last time and the week before. What we see is there's two categories of inheritance. This is really seen most clearly in Romans eight sixteen and 17. Verse 17 says, If children, if and we are children of God, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And I've gone through this many times with you, so you understand that the punctuation here is, is the issue. There's no punctuation in the original Greek. So are, are there is there one kind of inheritance here, or are there two kinds of inheritance here? The reason you, you look at this, you just take out the commas, and you have to make this decision from context in the broader context of Scripture. If the, the, the second category, being a fellow heir with Christ or a joint heir with Christ, has a condition attached to it, if indeed we suffer with him, So if there's one kind of inheritance and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ are synonymous, then they're both conditioned on suffering with Christ. What that means, therefore, is that in that view, salvation, you can be saved, but only if you suffer with Christ. You have to believe in Christ and you have to suffer with Christ. Otherwise there's no inheritance at all, right? Because that inheritance is conditioned on suffering. So that would contradict all the passages in the Bible that say that, that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. Well now we have a problem because that contradicts uh, faith alone in Christ alone. It contradicts the fact that you don't add works. We're justified by faith alone, Galatians 2:16, not by works. So maybe we need to repunctuate it a little bit. And I use the illustration from this sentence, a woman without her man is nothing, just to show that where you put the commas changes the meaning of the sentence. A woman without her man is nothing is saying that a woman is nothing unless she has a man. Uh, uh, That's the second example. The top example, a woman without her man is nothing, is saying just the opposite. It's saying that that um, without a woman, the man is nothing. Where you put the commas completely changes the meaning of that sentence, and that's what happens in Romans uh, 8.17. If we get rid of the comma after Christ and put the comma after God, then we have two different airships. We have an heir of God, which is not conditioned by anything. Every believer is an heir of God. Every believer has an eternal inheritance. Every believer has the, has certain things in common with every other believer. We're going to spend eternity with God. we're going to have a resurrection body. we're going to have uh, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. We're going to have uh, a great capacity for what we have what we have in heaven. But that second category, being a joint heir with Christ, is dependent upon something. It's conditioned on suffering. Now, that doesn't mean we're necessarily going to be persecuted, but just living in the devil's world, we're going to face certain kinds of opposition in relation to our faith as believers. And those who are willing to be obedient to God, which is the the meaning of that, that phrase, taking up your cross daily and following him, we saw that in, in, in Roman culture when they crucified someone, uh, they had to carry their cross to the location of the execution. And it's a sign that they have been forced to submit to the authority of Rome. So taking up your cross... Uh, means to submit to the authority of God. And so uh, whenever you submit to the authority of God, things are going to get dicey at times in this life. We're going to face a little opposition. We're living in the angelic conflict. There's going to be difficulty. So if you don't want to take up your cross daily and follow him, then you're not going to have a joint heirship with Christ. You're going to be in heaven. You're going to be an heir of God. You're going to have uh, tremendous uh, life that lasts forever, but it's not going to be what it could have been, should have been, and might have been because of a failure to grow uh, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to 1 Peter 1.4, this is inheritance is described by three adjectives that are significant. It's incorruptible. That means nothing is going to corrupt it, or and it's undefiled, and it can't fade away. It's not going to be destroyed. This indicates a, a, a permanence. It indicates something that cannot be destroyed, something that cannot be uh, uh, taken away. And then we're told that it is reserved in heaven for you. Now, this is where grammar gets important. And several times tonight, we're going to see the use of the perfect tense in the Greek which is so important because this indicates a completed action in past time, and the results go on. The, the, the action is completed, and the focus is on the fact that it, it's completed, but the actions uh, continue. When Jesus ended the payment for sin on the cross, when John wrote and described that in his gospel, he said, and when it was finished... And he used the Greek perfect uh, tense there to telestai, meaning that it, when it had been completed, when it was all done and nothing more could be added to it, Jesus said to So twice in two verses, you have that same form of the verb, emphasizing that it was finished, it was completed. Uh, if you lived in the Greco-Roman world and you had a debt that had to be paid, when you paid it off, what was written at the bottom of that bill was tetelestai, paid in full. It is finished. Nothing more can be added to it. And so it's emphasizing that. That's the sense of the perfect tense. So here what we're told is that this is reserved in heaven for us. That's a completed action. It was set aside for us. That This inheritance... Was set aside in eternity past. It's a completed and finished action by, by, by God, and it's our inheritance, and it's for each of us. It's for y'all. This is the plural, second person plural of the pronoun, meaning that it's for everyone to whom Peter is writing. That would include believers who are growing and believers who are not growing, believers who are obedient and believers who are disobedient. So this inheritance has to be that first category of inheritance. It has to be the inheritance that is common to every believer, the, that we're all heirs of God, and that inheritance cannot be lost or diminished. It is the same for every single believer. So we have, every believer has this inheritance, this possession that is ours forever, eternal life, in the sense of life unending, and a destiny where we will be with the Lord in His kingdom, and we will be with Him throughout all of eternity. Now, our role and responsibilities in the kingdom will differ. That has to do with the second kind of inheritance, that which comes as a result Of a reward, the reward of our inheritance as we saw, uh, in Colossians chapter 3. It's that reward that is a result of, of our obedience. So, salvation's a free gift. That inheritance being an heir of God is a free gift. But the additional inheritance is a result of obedience. It's a result of what we do in response to Christ. So, This tells us in verse 4 that we're talking about that which is common to every believer and where we're headed. We have a secure inheritance. That's where the doctrine of eternal security comes in here, a salvation that cannot be lost because we did nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to lose it. Whenever you hear anybody say that you can lose your salvation, hidden somewhere in their theology and their understanding is the idea that you have to do something to get it. And when you stop doing whatever it is you have to do to get it, then you lose it. The Bible says that Christ secured it. He paid for every single sin. You can't come along tomorrow and commit some sin that the omniscience of God forgot about or the omnipotence of God, failed to impute to Christ, or that Christ fa- failed to pay. He paid for every single sin. He paid the sin penalty for Adam's original sin, and he paid the penalty for all sin. So, this is the point on verse 4. Now, it starts getting interesting, because the verse ends by saying that this is a, an inheritance that re, that is reserved, that is kept on hold, in heaven, for, and we could paraphrase this, each one of you, for y'all, not just y'all, but it's all y'all, okay? Every believer, without exception, without distinction. Now, we have to think about, well, what's the relationship of verse 5 to verse 4? It starts off with a relative participle. It's translated correctly in most versions as a relative clause. Who? Talking about the y'all, okay, who are kept by the power of God. So now it's going to say something additional to that inheritance. And so we look at this word. It's not the same word we had before. Let's talk about being reserved in heaven for us. This is the word frureo, which means to guard or preserve something. And then it's followed by uh, a an instrumental uh, uh, clause uh, phrase by the power of God in plus the dative there of uh, of exousia. and what this is indicating here is that the immediate you have two instrumental clauses. This is getting off into grammar by the power of God and through faith, both express the means by which something is done. But in expresses the more immediate means, and dia is a slightly more remote means. So the primary way in which we are guarded is by the power of God. We're guarded by the power of God. But is this a guarding related to phase one, or is this a guarding related to phase two? This is where it gets dicey because it looks like this is talking about phase one. But the problem is that the terminology that's used here, faith and salvation and last time, are all used in this context to refer to the, the spiritual life, the life of the believer in time, not the believer in the future. So let's look at this a little bit. We, have to, we recognize that we're kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation. So we'll start by looking at this salvation, sort of work our way backwards to understand the, the, the faith that's emphasized here in the power of God. And the question is, what kind of salvation is this? And the word in the Greek is soteria, which is the noun form. And it can mean not only eventual justification or, or, or realization of our justification, But in many passages, as we've seen in our study in Romans, it refers to the spiritual life, deliverance uh, today from problems related to the sin nature. And it can also refer to ultimate glorification. So the question we're really asking here is, is is this, uh, because it's expressed as an end result in the verse for salvation, is this talking about phase three, our ultimate salvation, our glorification? Ours is talking about phase two. They're already justified. He's writing to them as believers, so we know it's not phase one. So here is the chart to explain what I've been indicating by phase one, phase two, and phase three terminology. Phase one occurs in an instant in time when a person believes Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. At that instant, when it becomes faith becomes knowledge and they know it's true, then at that instant, when they have that that little glimmer of truth and they know it's true, that's faith. They're believing it. They're giving assent to it as a truth, true uh, proposition. And that is called justification. At that instant, we're saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is eternal condemnation. Okay? Faith and, and spiritual death. So now they become spiritually alive. They're regenerate. Following that, we're like a baby. We have a new life. And so that new life has to be fed. It has to be nourished. We have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as, as Peter says in, at the end of his second epistle in Second Peter 3.18. So now in spiritual life, we ha- we're going to be saved from the power of sin. This is generally referred to by theologians as progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification and spiritual life. We're growing and there's ups and downs, there's failures, there's successes, but this is salvation in phase two. And then there's salvation is phase three, which is ultimate sanctification. when We're absent from this body, face to face with the Lord. We have no more sin nature, and so we are saved from the presence of sin. So the question is, what kind of salvation is this? Well, this salvation is going to be related to uh, to the, the faith that's here and it's going to be related to the general context of what we're, what we're looking at in between verse 5 and verse 12. So at first glance or even second glance, it looks like a phase three salvation. However, we have to pay attention to the context. Context defines even this is what I was pointing out in the, in the uh, introduction. You can take a verse and slice it out of the context, and if it just hangs there by itself, it could be talking about glorification. It could be talking about phase one. But the context is what defines it. So you have to take that blue piece of the jigsaw puzzle and put it back into the puzzle. Then all of a sudden you're going to know whether it's a it's the sky or the water or a fish or a plant. Uh, it's only the context that tells you. In verse 5, it says, we're kept by the power of God through faith. This indicates uh, usually, most most often, but only probably by 60% of the usage of the phrase through faith, it indicates justification. For example, in Romans 3.22, talking about being justified by faith. Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. They're saved is phase one, and faith is, is, is a phase one faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, that is the whole package of salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Galatians 2.16, for we're justif- not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Uh, Philippians 3.9 is stating the same thing, that we're saved or justified through faith. We have righteousness through faith. However, in a number of other passages, it refers to a phase two sanctification. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5.7, it says we walk by faith, dia plus the genitive. We walk through faith and not by sight. Okay, so that tells us that that faith, walking through faith is also descriptive of, of the faith rest drill, the ongoing walk, moment by moment, day by day walk by faith in God, faith in His Word. It's used that way in Hebrews 6.12 and in Hebrews 11.33. So that pretty much covers almost every usage of this phrase through faith. So it could be phase one or it could be, could be phase uh, phase two. And that helps us to understand that that we have to look further in the context to describe or to understand this. So when we look at the next couple of verses, Peter is going to say, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. So he's talking about right now. He's not talking about the future. He says, so now for a little while. So in this you greatly rejoice is referring back to verse 5, that uh, faith for salvation at the end, end of verse 5. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, so now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, having set things up in the first three verses, verses 3 through 5, he now gets to his main topic in this paragraph, which is how we handle present time difficulty. The It's You may be grieved by various trials, that for the purpose that the genuineness of your faith. Now remember, we're trying to answer what this through faith is in verse 5, and the next verse talks about, uh, uh, in verse 7, talks about the genuineness of your faith. This is post-salvation faith. This is your ongoing walk through faith. Uh, so that you, ha- that's how you handle the trials is utilizing the faith rest drill. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold it perishes though it is tested by fire. That's present time. It's not tested by fire in phase three. It's tested by fire today in phase two. That it may be found when we get to phase three to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when it's revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. Then we get to another aspect of verse 5, and that is understanding the phrase last time. For many of us, we have a knee-jerk reaction caused by pop Christianity and our love for prophecy that whenever we see the phrase last time or last days, we think of the end game. We think of the tribulation, we think of the rapture. But as I've said many, many times, In the Bible, there's two uses of last time or last days. One refers to the last days of Israel, and that's the tribulation, the second coming, and the millennial kingdom. Then there's the last days for the church age. And how long does that last? Through all the church age. We are in these last days, the church age. Look at these verses. 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And what he describes after that is what's been going on, the trends throughout the church age ever since the first century. Hebrews 1 says that that God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Wow, that's right now. These are the last days. These have been the last days for 2,000 years. And then it really gets clear in our context where Peter says he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. That's the exact same phrase. When is it Jesus made manifest? First advent in these last times. He's not talking about second advent. So contextually, the phrase last time is talking about this present church age. It's not talking about glorification. It's not talking about the end time. It's not talking about that phrase isn't referring to the future when Christ takes us home and we have the judgment seat of Christ. So, now when we look at verse 5, we're kept by the power of God through faith, that's phase 2, for salvation, for deliverance in these fiery trials. Ready to be revealed in these last days, in this time. Okay. When we talk about faith here, we also see faith mentioned again in verse 8. Uh, we're talking about our focus on Christ, our occupation with Christ. He says, Whom you having not seen you love, though now, present time, you do not see him, yet believing. Is that phase one, phase two, or phase three faith? Well, so there's no phase three faith. So it's either phase one or phase two. It's not phase one, so it can only be phase two. So the context is phase two. And then verse nine says, receiving the end of your faith, the end result of your faith. So if there's no faith in phase three, then the faith that it's talking about there is the faith that you have today. The believing that you have in this Christian life is going to be uh, revealed in this life, through the salvation of your souls. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. It's the same phrase. When we read that, we immediately think heaven, the salvation of our souls. But salvation means deliverance from fiery trials. So we have to rephrase it, retranslate it, say this is deliverance of your life. If you think about it, for those of you who are alive when the Titanic went down, and you read the article about it. It said that so many souls were lost. For, for years, people identi- talked that way. If there was a disaster, so many souls were lost. They didn't say so many lives were lost. They said so many souls were lost because the soul is often used as a synonym for life. That, that's found throughout the New Testament. Those who want to uh, uh Gain their life will lose it, soul there. So, so what Peter's talking about here, just as James is talking about in James one twenty one, is realizing the the full benefit, the abundant life that we are given, and that we realize when we use faith to face the fiery trials that come into our life. So, again, we're talking about a present time present time, deliverance of the life. Now, this is talked about again in verse 10. Notice at the end of this, verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the deliverance of your life, how you delivered from fiery trials. Now, when we go to verse 10 of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you on the surface again, it looks like this is talking about what Christ did on the cross. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ. How did Christ handle his suffering? It's not talking about what he's doing necessarily in terms of justification. It's talking about how the power of God sustained Jesus Christ on the cross. And if the power of God can sustain Jesus Christ through the trials he faced, then it's no problem for God's power to sustain you and me in the adversity that we face. So this is what the prophets were looking at, is how the pro- how in the process of the suffering of the Messiah... How he is sustained, and we'll go through all of this as we as we deal with. Them. I'm just giving you the overview. So, verse five says we're kept by the power of God through faith for deliverance, which is revealed in the last time, which is right now. So, the conclusion to all of this is that Peter is talking throughout this section about deliverance through fiery trials during our present time Christian life. It's the only thing that makes sense once you start looking at the word usage and the whole context of what Peter is discussing uh, throughout uh, throughout First Peter. First Peter one six, Peter he says, "In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials." And then at the end of the epistle, in four twelve, he says. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. So the whole epistle is wrapped around how to face difficulty, just like James. In fact, when we get there next week and we look at verses 6, 7, and 8, it's amazing how the vocabulary in those three verses is the same vocabulary that we find in James 1, 2 through 4. So we'll... We'll be looking at that in a little more detail. And so we back up to our verse in verse 5. We're kept by the power of God for deliverance through these fiery trials. This is the same thing that Peter leads off with in 2 Peter. He says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's God's power that sustains us. It's God's power that gets us through everything in life. Nothing else you can't add to it. It's God's omnipotence that sustains us. He's already given us everything related to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, which have been given. So notice his divine power has given to us, and that's the first word on the bottom left. It's a perfect middle participle. In verse 4... These things have been given to us, which have been given to us, these exceedingly great and precious promises, that's also a perfect tense. It's completed action. It's already been provided. It's already been given to us. What's important is for us to learn how to walk by faith in dependence on the power of God. So let me wrap up with about six points of summary. First of all, we're to praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to praise God for the totality of his plan of salvation for for each of us. And that plan takes us from regeneration to the realization of our inheritance that is already reserved for us. Okay? So we're to praise God in the midst of fiery trials because of his plan, which takes us from regeneration to the realization of our inheritance. Second we recognize that our inheritance is secured by god for our future that means we can't lose it that's verse 4 that is what we all have in common as believers third thing that we see here is that throughout this section peter wants us to understand that we need to live today in light of tomorrow only when we're living the spiritual life are we are suffering with christ which is a theme throughout this epistle And we're going to realize that we're joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. So this is all about that second category of inheritance. There's a story about a guy who died. They put him in a casket, had an open casket funeral, which I'm not not real fond of. But what got everybody's attention was that as he's in the casket, his hand is propped up on his stomach, and he has a fork in it. Everybody goes by and they wonder, why in the world does this guy have a fork in it? Well, when it came to the message, the pastor said, well, you're all wondering why the the guy's holding a fork. His wife told him throughout life, never go anywhere without a fork. Because you're always anticipating something, and something good may come, and you'll need that fork. So the fact that he had that fork in his hand indicated that he was looking forward to something next. Something that was coming. Being in the casket wasn't the end. He was ready for the next thing. So we need to live with that future in mind. Fourth point is that every believer has a secured, incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. That is our inheritance with God. So every believer has this secured, incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Fifth, but every believer has a potential of a higher or an additional eternal blessing based on performance here on earth, if we suffer with Christ. We're going to be grieved by various trials, Peter said. We'll be tested by fire. But we need to learn to handle that suffering just as Christ did. And that is point six. It is through the power of God. It is depending upon the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God that preserves us. It's not our skill. It's not our intelligence. It's not our physical strength. It's not the schemes that we come up with. It's the power of God that sustains us. That doesn't mean that we just sit like a lump, but we trust in the power of God. Just as David did, read the Psalms again and again. Just this morning, I was reading about the Absalom uh, conspiracy and revolt, and then I was reading in the Psalms, and although the Psalms don't specifically state what's going on, uh, what the circumstances were, it easily could fit the Absalom uh, rebellion. Again, how, how, how David just talks about how God is the one who sustains him against his enemies. He, that didn't mean he didn't use his army. That didn't mean he didn't uh, have tactics with his advisors, but it meant that ultimately he knew that nothing worked apart from the power of God. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things because as, as we look at the future and look at the circumstances internationally and nationally, uh, very well, uh, we very well could face some extremely difficult times whether it's economically, whether it has to do with uh, the various laws and trends, the corruption that is in our culture, that which will sustain us is your word, your power, God, the Holy Spirit. Nothing else will sustain us, no matter how bad things might get, no matter how wonderful things might be. We can have stability because we trust in you and you provide for us. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to uh, understand the flow of thought here in First Peter, that we might assimilate these ideas, this teaching into our soul and be strengthened by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.